Well, I want to add my Christmas joy and welcome to all of you for worship, whether you're watching us online or whether you're a part of our sanctuary community this morning. And as we make our anticipated march towards Christmas Eve, we are walking through the ancient kind of calendar of Christmas of each week of Advent, which means coming, our anticipation of the coming of Jesus into the world. And this year, we're not so much focusing on what happened at Christmas, but what difference that Christmas makes. And there's a lot of different ways to try to anticipate the difference that Christ's coming makes in our lives. But what we've identified is that our economy has recovered, our schools have recovered, our society has recovered faster than our joy, that we've lost a little bit of the joy of the gospel and that we need to recover that and it is available to us. And then there's a New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul expressly and explicitly wrote in order to help a community to recover their joy. And this is our roadmap in the midst of this. That last week we talked about gratitude, which is chapter one. This week we're going to talk about humility, which is chapter two. In chapter three, we're going to talk about persistence or resilience. And then chapter four, we're going to talk about peace. And each of these are like a different facet of what it means for us to recover the joy that God has entrusted to each and every one of us. And last week when we talked about gratitude, we talked about how gratitude isn't just like a vague devotional mood or, or feeling, but that it's concrete. It is these three steps. We talk about that gratitude is your confidence being in the right place, your consistency in the right kinds of practices, and your community that you're living in with the right kind of purpose. That gratitude is really your life oriented around the way you think, the way you live with others, and the way that you live your life more so than it is the way that you feel. As we're going through this series, we're looking at excerpts from the entire book of Philippians and we're repeating that and hearing it over and over again. And I'm using a different translation from what you're used to and I've retranslated some of this as I've internalized it. So I encourage you to just listen and hear as they would have heard this letter read aloud to them as Paul wrote this as correspondence when he says this. I thank my God every time I remember you constantly praying with joy in every one of my prayers for all of you because of your sharing in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will see it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That it's right for me to think this way about all of you because you hold me in your heart for all of you sharing God's grace with me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God as my witness, how I long for all of you with the compassion of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer. That your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and with full insight to help you to determine what is best so that on the day of Jesus you may be pure and blameless having produced a harvest of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. And so if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion, any sympathy, then make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but 
to the interest of others. Let the same mind of Christ be in you, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but he, he emptied himself and he took on the form of a slave. And being found in human likeness and being born in human form, he humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling for it is God who is at work within you enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and complaining. Do I need to say that part again? Do all things without murmuring and complaining that you may be blameless and innocent children of God in the midst of a warped and a crooked generation in which you shine like the stars in the universe. And yet whatever gains I have, these I have come to regard as lost because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I regard them as a waste in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes through faith in God. The righteousness of God found from faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing in his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection of the dead, for not, I've not only not received this, nor have I reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do Forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And so rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, with prayer, with supplication, and with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, will stand guard at your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's anything that is excellent, if there's anything that is worthy of praise, think about these. Keep on doing the things that you have heard and seen and learned and received in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Today we're going to talk about the subject of humility, and in my opinion, it's the finest sermon I've ever written. <laughs> and the greatest temptation that we have when it comes to the subject of humility is, is for me to stand up here and to give you some tips or some tricks or some hacks, some basically glorified Christian self-help, and in a lot of regards, maybe it doesn't really help you to become less prideful 
It just helps you to appear a little less prideful. And so I want to drill down all the way into the bedrock of actually, could there be the possibility of transformation in your life and in mine? And at the heart of this letter that Paul writes is not some bits of advice from here or there, but a a very austere passage. Will you say it with me? We're going to put it up on the screen. Let's say it in unison. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. My question for you today is, have you done that? I want to introduce you this morning to a woman by the name of Joy Davidman. She was an earlier 20th century American poet. She married uh, another writer, a man by the name of Bill, who was not a good guy. He was addicted to different forms of substances. He was completely unreliable, both relationally as well as with money. He was never there. They had two children together, and he would disappear, and she would never know if he was going to come back. On this one particular occasion, in the midst of all of the substance abuse and the verbal abuse and everything that she was going through, he called her one day and said that he was having a nervous breakdown, then he hung up on her, and she didn't know if he was alive or dead or if he had done something quite drastic. And it was in the midst of that vulnerability that this American atheist poet wrote this. For the first time in my life, I felt helpless. For the first time, my pride was forced to admit that I was not calm after all and the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. All my defenses, all the walls of arrogance and cockiness and self-love behind which I had hid from God went down momentarily and God came in. There was a person with me in that room, directly present to my consciousness, a person so real that all my previous life was by comparison a mere shadow play. And I myself was more alive than I had ever been It was like waking from sleep. Eventually, this American atheist poet, Joey Davidman, met and fell in love with one C.S. Lewis and married him. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is a woman by the name of Dr. Rosalind Picard. She's a researcher right now at MIT. When she was in college, she felt like that all people who were religious, regardless of what you were religious in terms of your brand of that, that it just meant that you were uneducated and you didn't understand the way that things worked. And yet, as an educated person, looking down on all religious people, but particularly Christians, she said that she felt like she needed to read the Bible just to see what was in it. And so she opened it while she was in college, expecting to find a whole lot of mumbo-jumbo inside of it. She was expecting to find a lot of things that she would be absolutely offended by. 
And yet something strange happened as she read the Bible, even with her skeptical perspective. She actually felt like that God was speaking to her through these words. She didn't want it. She couldn't explain it. But she didn't have another way of describing it. A friend invited her to go to church with her on this one particular Sunday, and the preacher preached a sermon where he talked about who's leading your life, who is the Lord of your life, because everyone's being led by someone. To which she went home on that Sunday and she wrote this, I was intrigued, I was the captain of my ship, but was it possible that God would actually be willing to lead me? After praying, my world changed dramatically as if flat black and white existence suddenly turned full color and three-dimensional. I once thought I was too smart to believe in God. Now I know I was an arrogant fool who snubbed the greatest mind in the cosmos, the author of all science, mathematics, art, and everything else there is to know. Today I walk with joy alongside the most amazing companion anyone could ask for, filled with desire to keep learning and exploring. Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Here is somebody who might not need an introduction. His name is Bono. He's the lead singer of probably the most successful rock band in all of history, the band U2. Bono grew up in Ireland and One time after his mother had died, he went to a YMCA camp. And while he was there, he reported this in his memoir. I'd never been away from my family. I'd never been out of Ireland. I'd never met such religious devotion. Even the football and hockey teams had biblical names. You could be playing for the Ephesians or the Galatians. It was a little mad, but also moving and persuasive. I was taken in by the camaraderie and touched by the preaching. I'd always be the first up when there was an altar call, the come to Jesus moment. I still am. If I was in a cafe right now and someone said, stand up if you're ready to give your life to Jesus, I'd be the first to my feet. I took Jesus with me everywhere and I still do. I've never left Jesus out of the most banal or profane actions of my life. Work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. Somewhere between my freshman and my sophomore year of college, I didn't believe in God anymore. I had walked away from the faith of my childhood and my family. There's a whole host of reasons for this, but I was on a backpacking experience in the Wind River Mountains of Wyoming near the Shoshone National Forest. I was with my uncle and his wife. It was a trip of solitude. I would go entire stretches of days where I would do nothing but read and take in the scenery. One time in the evening I went for a late afternoon hike and and sat down on the precipice of a, a rock and a cliff and beneath me was the most magnificent, lush, green valley I had ever seen in my life. And I watched the sunset and all the different colors happened. And I'm a Presbyterian, so I, don't, I, I almost don't even have words to describe for you what happened to me. I wasn't looking for God. 
I just wanted to be left alone. And it felt like God had placed his hands on my back and had said, I know you don't believe in me, but I'm right here. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's my point today with all of these different examples. Humility is not just a disposition, an attitude, or a set of practices. True humility can only be found when you realize that there's a God and it's not you. Dallas Willard writes it like this. You cannot try to be God and think about the real God at the same time. It will give you a massive headache. And so repeat after me. There is a God. And it is not me. Repeat after me. There is a God. And it is not you. Humility can only be found when we have worked out our salvation with fear and trembling. And when that has happened, when you are willing to surrender your life to God, then this can happen. You can have a Christ-like humility, which means, as rooted in today's text, that even your emptiness can become fullness, even your slavery can become freedom, and even your death can become life. So let's talk about each of these just briefly. First, your emptiness becomes fullness. In the midst of this passage, it says this, that Christ, but Jesus, emptied himself. That is a very specific Greek word. It is the word kenosis. Jesus emptied himself. What's interesting, in the passage it talks about do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. What's interesting is that the word for conceit in Greek means to be of an empty mind or empty opinion. As C.S. Lewis put it, I don't think more of myself, I don't think less of myself, instead I think of myself less. At the root of all lack of humility is an insecurity. Because you can either think too highly of yourself or think too lowly of yourself. Empty opinion or conceit. And the best way that I know of to know whether or not, in the irony of life, don't miss this, you and I do everything we can to fill our lives and yet we feel empty, right? What Jesus invites us to do is to follow in his step, which is to empty ourselves. And amazingly, we become full. And the way that you can know if this is happening in your life or not is by knocking over your water bottle. (laughs) The way that you can know that this is happening in your life is with this part of the passage that says, do all things without murmuring and arguing, or you you can translate arguing as complaining. Your disagreeableness is probably not just an attitude problem and an adjustment. It probably is giving you an indication of the state of your soul. And so Christ-like humility means that your emptiness can become fullness. It means that your slavery 
can become freedom. Because Christ not only emptied himself, the text says that he took on the form of a slave. Here's the way the text puts it here up on the screen. And that that word for slave there is a very particular word. There are some modern translations that call it a servant. This is specifically the word doulos for slave. Jesus became a slave so that we might become free. He wasn't just doing service-like things and a show. No, he became a slave and let go of his freedom. You and I live in a time where we will do anything to stand up for our rights. When was the last time somebody marched for their responsibilities? And yet what Jesus does is remarkable here. He lets go of freedom, takes on slavery so that he can show us what real freedom is like. I, this, is a, this is a difficult subject to just even bring up, so let me, let me talk about it, but let me talk about it with the caveat, I am not trying to minimize what I'm about to say, I am not trying to justify what I am about to say. But when I was in seminary and I was in a church history class, one of the more transformational moments for me of being in a history course was being assigned readings from colonial America in which the tension of slavery in our country was fully at hand. And I'd be reading sermons from white pastors and sermons from African-American pastors. And here's what I learned. I learned that those African-American Christians had a freedom in spite of the worst of circumstances that they could be forced into. And that the gospel shined through their lives and their witness because of the nature of the gospel that they believed in. Do you hear me correctly? I'm not minimizing, I'm not justifying. What I am saying is this. There is a freedom to be found from regardless of the situation that someone else puts you in. When I meet with some people in my office, sometimes I have to get brass tacks to the question of why are you allowing that person to be the captain of your soul? Don't let them into that space. They should not, you should not allow them to be the master of your soul. You see, you and I have a different understanding of freedom than just the ability to do what you want whenever you want to. True freedom is only found in Christ. And that doesn't mean that we should enslave others by any stretch of the imagination. What it does mean is that you will never find your freedom just in being able to do what you want whenever you want. There's a deeper kind of freedom that is beyond our circumstances. Your emptiness can become fullness, your slavery can become freedom, and your death becomes life. Jesus not only emptied himself, he not only took on the form of a slave, but also in this scripture here, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
When I preached my first sermon for you, I told you the story of two soldiers from World War I who were in a trench together. And while they were in that trench, they developed a deep and abiding friendship. You know how they say there's no atheists in foxholes? There's also no shallowness in foxholes. There came a point when their commander told them to go into attack, and it was a mistake. For even though they were fighting over just a little bit of real estate, many lives would be lost in that attack. When they got back to the trench from an order to retreat, the friend noticed that his friend wasn't there. And he asked his commander if he could go and search for his friend because someone had said that last time I saw him, he was out there and he was still alive. And his commander forbid it and said, there's no way I'm going to risk your life in order to try to get his because he's probably not alive anyway. When his commander's back was turned, the soldier clambered out of the trench and ran and threw all of the smoke and all of the explosions. He found his way to his friend. They exchanged a few words and then he put his friend on his back and he dragged him crawling through the mud and the grime and the bullets and they fell back into the trench. But somewhere between the moment he exchanged that word with his friend and the moment that he had gotten him back to the trench, somewhere in that moment, his friend had died. And his commander, wanting to make, wanting to make an example out of his disobedience, said, was it worth it? You risked your life? You could have died and he was already dead anyway? Yes, sir, it was worth it. What could have possibly have made it worth it? Because of what he told me, sir. What did he tell you? He looked at me and he said, I knew you'd come. I knew you'd come. We will do everything in our power to try to preserve our own lives. And when we do that, we find that our lives just leak away from us. What if the greatest way to live was not for yourself, but through the sacrifice of others? And so I'm not going to give you any tips or tricks or hacks with regards to humility, because I think Christ-like humility looks like this. An emptiness that becomes fullness, a slavery that becomes freedom, and a death that becomes life. And that the only way for this to take place is to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you. And so here's the deal. This salvation applies just as equally to poets like Joy Davidman or scientists like Rosalind Picard or like rock stars who changed their name to Bono, or even preachers. It can be at camp, it can be in a crisis, it can be in the wilderness, it can be through the sheer act of reading your Bible and going to church. 
But humility will not happen unless it is theologically grounded humility. Have you worked out, exercised, thought through your own rescue? Let us pray. Our loving God and Father, we're incredibly grateful for what you have done at Christmas in coming to be near to us and helping us to be able to recover the joy of your good news. And that a part of recovering the joy of what you've entrusted to us is not only gratitude, but also humility. And so help us to look to the person and the work of Jesus Christ who emptied himself, who became a slave, and whose death became life. Give us a genuine Christ-like humility that instead of trying to fill ourselves and to do whatever we want and do everything we can to preserve our life and prolong our life, help us to live a different kind of way. And the only way that this will make any sense to us, O God, is if we work out our own salvation with you. Someone can't work it out for us. It's not about tips or tricks or hacks. And so help us, God, to not try to be God. That there is a God. And it's not us. And that's the only place where humility can be found. And we offer this prayer in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.